there's a term called the singularity, where the idea being that the, is the AI can improve itself, but because it moves so quickly, I mean, at a million times the speed of human thought, that it's going to get better so fast, it'll look like it was an explosion, even though it was a week or a month. Mm. I think that the people who are worried about it are really deep in the technology and not as good at thinking about where the technology might wind up. So I absolutely think there's a threat. I absolutely think it's a concern. I think it is one of those moments where it'd be good if different disciplines talk to each other more because the practical reality of getting something out into the world and, and it really doing things is often where those two men kind of don't meet up. What is up, everyone? And thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Bricks and Bytes podcast. On today's episode, we welcome Hugh Seaton, CEO of The Link and host of the Constructed Futures podcast. Hugh is a construction industry legend and has held top positions in various companies across the globe. In this podcast, we discuss how artificial intelligence is automating tasks and tackling labor shortages, why networking and building a professional following is key, the importance of continuous learning and staying curious, and Hugh's advice for people looking to progress in the industry. If you're enjoying our podcast, please check us out on Spotify or Apple and wherever you get your podcasts from. And please leave us a review. This helps us get the most amazing guests to give you guys the best and most informative content on technology in the built world. You are listening to Bricks and Bytes podcast, where we take you on a journey in construction, technology and business. All right, let's get this episode started. Welcome, Hugh. And just before we do this, we research our guests quite a bit. And with you, it was quite difficult to know where to start. And I say that because you come from a lot of diverse roles from marketing, academia. Is that right? Academia? I'm sure it's a yeah. junk professor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Product management, startup founder and exeter, I shall add, podcast host and various roles in innovations. And in addition to that, you hold an MBA um, combined over two schools. What does a, such a very background teach you about life success opportunities and challenges? Well, first of all, thank you for that. That's probably the first time someone has done that level of research. So I, that's exciting. <laughs> I started my career, believe it or not, in uh, greater China. So I spent about 10 years there. And that got me on a path of both loving technology, because my first role, believe it or not, was at a Taiwanese steel factory, helping to translate specifications from English into Chinese, which was a good way to learn Chinese and a good way to learn about welding. But that kind of got me excited about learning. I kind of already was, but it taught me a few things to your question. One of them is, is, and you hear people say, stay curious. I think that there's anything, if you go deep enough into it, can be interesting. The fact that welding wire was really interesting is surprising because you're like, well, it's wire. But it actually, it's really hard to get right. And there's all sorts of knobs to twist and this and that. So I think recognizing that stuff that looks boring, if you dig into it, probably isn't as boring as you think. The other thing related to that is to focus on, on the fact that the changes in your life aren't where productivity happens. It comes from stability. So you wouldn't think someone with a resume like mine would say that stability is really important. But it really is. That's when you wind up making the biggest gains is when you're able to focus on something for a long time and you get some systems in place and, and get going. And I guess the third thing I'd say is important to think about creating resources, not stuff. So, I mean, achievement is great, but achievement comes because you created the ability to achieve something. 
So resources are something to focus on. Is what resources am I building? Is it a network? Is it a skill? Is it a degree? Is it company? All that comes together to to get you where you want to go. Which out of these all of the experiences you've had was most impactful? Do you think, or you can't really say which one was the most impactful on what you're doing currently? Yeah. It's easy to say the stuff I'm doing right now is the most impactful because it's so vivid and what's happening right now. But there are a couple things. One is spending time in another, in a really different culture. So Chinese culture mm-hmm. is pretty meaningfully different. I was in Taiwan for a while, Hong Kong for a while, and Shanghai for a while. It just teaches you a little bit about how to think. What about year was that, more or less? I was in Taiwan in 94 to 96. Then I was in Hong Kong mm-hmm. from 96 to 98. And then I was in Shanghai from 07 to 12. So I really saw China go from still pretty communist to really capitalist. And then you start on the path to where it is now, which is different. Yeah, for Mm -hmm. sure. Okay, let's get into the juicy stuff, shall we say. So you were involved with uh, AI obviously has become quite a bit of a buzzword nowadays. 2023 is the year of AI, but you were involved way back. It's around about 2017. That's right. So I had my first American startup. We did something in China before that. but And we did some things with e-learning. We did some things that related to the construction industry as well. And we worked with natural language processing, which was sort of deep learning, which everything is everything we see is more or less deep learning, even the large language models. But back then, it was much simpler. It could do pretty amazing things even then, though. And I got in, just real excited about the path that we saw it on. The thing about AI is it looks... If you take the path that it's on and extend it, it looks like, oh my gosh. And then, of course, the path kind of, the curve bends a little bit and it gets a little bit, it slows down. But in the 2016, 2017, 2018, there was a lot of amazing things that were coming online and we got to work with some pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Okay, nice. You obviously, back to 2017. So, so in terms of AI, talking of that far away, seems like such ancient times now, but obviously was not that really that far in the grand scheme of life. But how would you say it was sort of perceived and understood back then versus now, now it's commercialized and accessible to everyone? That's a great question. So I think I like to talk about AI in waves and I didn't come up with that idea. It's just a useful way of thinking about it. In the 80s, there was a kind of AI that was more like a bunch of rules and it ran out of gas because you can't write rules to do sophisticated things. 2011, Englishmen in Canada led a team in America to kind of popularize deep learning. A guy named Jeff Hinton at University of Toronto went to Stanford in, as I say, I believe it's 2011, and won their ImageNet by such a wide margin that everybody said, wow, what did he do? And they found out it was deep learning, and the next year everybody was doing deep learning. And so the trajectory went from coming out of nowhere and people thinking AI was a dead end to, oh my gosh, it can do some pretty amazing stuff. Now, what's important is what deep learning as of the the 2010s, 20 up to about 2022, what it could do is predict things and what it could do is classify things, but usually one or two things at a time as opposed to big hmm. sets of context. So it was really good at natural language processing. It was really good at understanding speech. It was really good at translation. So a lot of the stuff that we take for granted now came about during that decade. It became a little bit passe because it was baked into so many things. People got sick of hearing AI when it was everybody was kind of doing it. And you can get from Google and a number of others APIs that made almost every software engineer able to implement something with AI in it. What changed... So back then, the perception was, this is amazing, and we're going to have self-driving cars by 2019, and everyone's going to be out of a job. If this, some of this sounds yes. familiar, it, there's a reason for it. 
It turned out that way of doing AI had a cap in how good it was going to get. And we were approaching that in around 2020. Mm -hmm. So again, it, it sort of lost a little bit of its luster and other things like crypto and metaverse and yada, yada, other things got exciting. What changed is in 2017, interestingly, a paper was written that changed the architecture of AI with a thing called transformer. So we hear GPT, the T is transformer. It's a really mm -hmm. different way of looking at content that looks more at context and a little less at, one, at a point. And what that means is instead of just saying, this is what that word is, or what this is what those couple of words are, it can look at whole paragraphs and pages and documents. So it's a much wider lens and a lot more powerful. And what the difference between 2017 and 2022 is OpenAI decide, figured out how to make it steerable and useful. So it was this big engine that would just produce all sorts of stuff that some, most of which wasn't useful. In November, when we saw ChatGPT, that was the first time this incredibly powerful engine had been harnessed in a way that it produced useful things. And the degree to which it can do useful things, we're still just figuring out. New stuff happens all the time. And the difference between 2015, 16, 17, and now is there's like a million engineers out there who know how to work in AI where that wasn't true before. So now you've got this incredible, really powerful set of tools and a ton of people who know how to work with it, ton of people who appreciate data and appreciate workflows and training and all this stuff. So it's a really different time than a decade ago because it's very fertile ground and there's just a lot of interest and money behind it. Was, was there still talk about this existential threat that uh, AI poses to humans back then? And also yes. what your thoughts are on that, that threat, because that seems to be a popular subject that top people are talking about as well. Yeah, there was. In fact, some of the books, some of the better books that talk about it came out around 2019. So there was concern about it because the, for the first time, it was a question of when, not if. They knew that the current models probably wouldn't get us there, but they also had seen such a leap that it was, look, at some point, this is going to get to human level and beyond. And what happens then, we don't know. There's a term called the singularity, where the idea being that the, is the AI can improve itself, but because it moves so quickly, I mean, at a million times the speed of human thought, that it's going to get better so fast, it'll look like it was an explosion, even though it was a week or a month. Mm. I think that the people who are worried about it are really deep in the technology and not as good at thinking about where the technology might wind up. So I absolutely think there's a threat. I absolutely think it's a concern. I think it is... One of those moments where it'd be good if different disciplines talk to each other more because the practical reality of getting something out into the world and, and it really doing things is often where those two men kind of don't meet up. I think that the concern we have about AI overlords or the evil version of it is way less likely than us trusting it before it's ready to be trusted because we don't know how it's going to fail or it disrupting society because huge swaths of work are not necessary anymore or are automatable or semi-automatable. I think it's going to be a huge disruption to the workforce. Now, that, that's coming as a demographic collapse is happening across most of the world. So it may wind up that one thing kind of fits with the other to some degree, where we just don't have as many workers as we are built for. And we got to figure out what to do about it. So I don't know. I mean, there's a lot going on. You're talking yeah. about really big societal questions with lots of factors involved. Yeah. Hugh, I just got a question about, so you mentioned that in around 2020, we added the T letter to GPT, and that's why we could advance to kind of next level of, of AI. 
So is there any, how can we measure the capacity of the T letter in terms of when, what will be the next blockade on the road of developing LLMs or AI? If we can, if we can predict that or. That's a great question. And we don't know. So when the first paper came out, it's a cool paper called Attention is All You Need. It was 2017 and it took five years for it to turn into something that really changed the world or changed the landscape at least. We don't know if someone right now is doing something that's going to, in three or four years, turn into the next great leap. I'll give you an idea of places to look, though. Jan LeCun is a French scientist who works at Meta. And he was actually the inventor of one of the main ways that computer vision works uh, called convolutional neural nets. He's doing some really interesting work about what they call self, self-supervised learning and some other things about the, the fundamental architecture. For all we know, he's already written the paper or has already given the presentation that just needs development and commercialization. That's the point. It's stuff's really, really big. The transformer idea didn't really do its magic until they trained it on some insane amount of data, like all of Wikipedia or half the internet. So what might look cool idea turns into a revolution when it's very expensively implemented. Because I think it's 20 million or some crazy amount of money just for the server costs to make GPT-1 work and then two and then three. So it's tough to know how important this stuff is until someone has engineered it and turned it into something real. Okay. You touched on your earlier answer about some bits about the speed at which things will change. You you mentioned that it may feel like a long time, but in fact, it may only happen over a matter of weeks or days. So where do we think, what do we think, how will that rate of change? I know there's obviously talk in the tech world about exponential growth, but we're almost beyond that. I think, so I was talking about the singularity idea and we're not there. And that's a theory, whether that really happens or not, we don't know. What I'd be more interested in, and I think listeners today are more interested in, is ChatGPT and the Transformer kind of group. Because, you know, Facebook's got one called Llama. There's another one that just came out of France like two days ago. This idea is out of the bottle. And a lot of people, like I said before, there's a million engineers. I don't really know the number, but a million is not a bad place to at least be thinking that know how to work with this stuff. So suddenly you're seeing it pop up all over the place. I think just this thing, this transformer architecture, has enough innovation in it that we're going to see some pretty amazing things over the coming two years. I mean, we're just discussing that quite recently they released ChatGPT with vision, which means you can show it things and it can replicate them or it can know what you're looking at. That is a bigger deal than I think at first it sounds like because it means you now have the full internet able to explain to you what you're looking at, which Google's done this with Google Lens, but this is way more powerful and way more intuitive. What's that going to mean for guidebooks or for, I don't even know how it's going to be productized. So the thing is between a technology and someone and some entrepreneur seeing market need for it often takes months or even years. So I think the next two years, you're going to start to see some pretty amazing uses of this technology that really change how we deal with information how we change with documents, how we deal with lots of stuff. In other words, it allows Owen Drury to go from reading one book a day if he's hyper-caffeinated to consuming a hundred if he just needs their summaries. Like that's really different. Mm -hmm. So, and we don't know what that means. We don't know what that's going to do. We don't know how people Mm -hmm. are going to make use of that. We don't know the disruptions it might cause. Mm -hmm. So what about the impact of LLMs and AI on the construction industry particular? What kind of uh, use cases do you see? 
Yeah, I think the very relating this to the demographic issue that you see coming up. No, yeah, no that's leading, right. No leading you down a path there, but that's right. Well, they do relate, of course, and and I think so. Imagine if there's an FMI study from a couple of years ago that about 13 percent of a field team's time is spent looking for information. That's one of those numbers that gets quoted a lot. Let's just say it's it's 15 percent, and it's about a sixth. So now you're saying that one day a week. I'm really rounding up here just to make a point, but imagine that you've got between 15 and 20% of people's time, let's call it something like a day a week is spent doing non-productive work. They're finding information, they're shuffling stuff. And that doesn't include how long, how much time is spent on documentation generally, how often we have superintendents who are working at night to get their paperwork done. A lot of that stuff becomes very automatable in that you don't have to write the actual RFI, you can just click a button and then check it and review it. It's a whole lot easier to review a thing than it is to write a thing. It means things for attention span where people are going to have to stay focused for a lot of reviewing a lot of documents, but it's just, it's an enormous time saver. So if we think about the point that Owen just brought up, which is the labor shortage, yes, it's a skilled labor shortage primarily, but everyone has a labor shortage in pretty much every industry. If you're able to say one person can now do the work of two because I've absorbed all of the time spent on documentation and reporting and so on, that starts to do a better job of either making people's lives livable because they're not working 14-hour days and barely seeing their kids at night, and or it means I can get I don't I can say yes to jobs that I couldn't with the staff that I have or that I can get. So I think the first thing you're going to see is documents and the reporting that documents are usually part of completely changing. After that, I think there's some other things coming, but I'll pause there for a sec. Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, I feel like to ask more follow-ups to that point, but I guess part of that would be your current business, the link, or the you are the founder, right, of Link? Yes. You see, yeah, founder and CEO. So yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about what the Link is currently doing when it comes to uh, construction contracts and documents? Yeah. So I spent about three years at the Construction Specifications Institute here in the U.S. and saw pretty early that specifications are essential to construction, which is not a surprise. But the way they're done is still pretty anchored in paper. They may be using PDFs, but the fundamental process is very paper-based. And these are basically contract addendums that are are meant to cover the whole job, which at any given moment means it's overkill for a a field team. So they're trying to find an answer, but they have to dig through 2,500 pages that are necessary for the whole job, but like I said, overkill for that moment. So we focused at first on making specs consumable with some pretty standard old version AI. So we started before this big LLM revolution kind of came about. So we were using natural language processing and a few other things to just make specs easier, whether it was with a submit log or with some other features we've developed. But when we saw that LLMs had become steerable, that changed the direction of the company. And we, as quickly as we could do so well, we created a product that we call SpecGPT, which allows you to upload specs and just do all sorts of fun stuff with them. The interesting thing you learn though is an LLM without a little intelligence added on top of it is still a pretty blunt instrument. So we've gone and done some things which relate to these questions about how do you use LLMs. We went and did a bunch of interviews, created an, kind of an overlay that allows the LLM to much more accurately find what you're looking for. Because often it'll find anything that, that answers the question. But there's a lot of things in a big spec that might kind of answer the question. So how do you do a better job? So a lot of what we've spent on, and we're not the only ones doing this general point, which is how do you make them more useful, more quickly, more efficiently, but also traceable. 
one of the problems with LLMs, and I guess we'll talk about risk in a sec, but is that they're optimized to answer your question whether they know the answer or not. And it looks the same if they've concocted an answer or if they've retrieved an answer. And that's really important because they, they're super confident either way, which is funny if you think <laughs> about it, but not funny if you're the lawyer in the U.S. who got disbarred yeah. because he had ChatGPT write, <laughs> write his case. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it invented citations. And the lawyer was like, well, this looks legit. <laughs> oh, I didn't spend a thousand dollars to have a paralegal go look them up. Well, that's mm-hmm. an extreme example of a general point, And that is just because it looks good doesn't mean it's risk-free or it hasn't created risks that you don't see. So for us, we always allow you to click through and see the original spec just so that you're sure and you, we're not creating any new risk. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things in construction technology generally is you have to be careful that you're not creating new risk for your customers. Is there a claim where someone could say, you should have known because you were using Procore or you were using open space or whatever? Those folks are pretty careful to make sure they don't create new risk. But the point I'm making is for especially a new technology, you have to be asking yourself, how am I making sure that I'm lowering their overall risk, not creating new risk? Mm -hmm. So on the risk point, uh, how do we then mitigate the risk? So I mentioned earlier before we started recording that we will probably as an industry, AI industry will figure out how to create bots of some software that picks up these things and, and mitigate the risk. You said that this is probably not going to happen. Can you expand on that? Well, I think it might happen one day, but we're not near that yet. The point is that we don't understand how, we don't intuitively understand how AI arrives at its conclusions. So we don't know how it's going to fail. And it looks so confident that we get, you will get lazy. As a human, you'll be like, great, this is, and I'm busy and I don't have time to double check. So the concern is it looks like it did a good job and 98% of the time it might. But what about that 2%? Are you checking? Mm-hmm. Are you making sure that that 2% isn't a problem for you? So humans in the loop are still going to be an, a, a key part of implementing AI for a while. I think we will find that you can trust it a little bit and then a little more and a little more. But I think we need to be super skeptical about how much we trust it on its own. So the point you were making, Martin, that when we were discussing was you can get AI to debug your software, which you can. But typically what people are doing that I've seen anyway is the AI reports what it sees. It doesn't do it left alone. You don't just hope you don't just give it a website, say, go build this, debug it and then load it. You know what I mean? It's automating parts. It's automating tasks, but it doesn't have world knowledge. It doesn't have humility. doesn't Mm -hmm. know to check whether there's something in the, on the server side you weren't aware of. The world's just a complicated place and humans are pretty good at at riding over bumps and AI is not so good at bumps. Yeah. Great tool to use for marketing purposes, but not necessarily to design structural elements of huge buildings. You still need people to do that. There's a guy who runs a company called Scale AI. I'm blank Alex, I believe Alex Wong. He gave a great speech in 2018 where he was talking to executives, not to technology, not to developers. And he said, the first thing that you need to know when you're building anything with AI is how accurate does it need to be? Because 60% is really easy. 80% is very doable. 90% even is pretty doable. But when you need to get to 100% or even close, Mm. it'll blow your mind how much data you need. And that's the Mm -hmm. issue of what you just said, Martin, is if I can accept 95% and there's a human there to just keep an eye on things, it's pretty doable. If I need it to be so good that I can just leave it alone, which is approaching 100%, then you really have an issue. And I don't think anyone in construction has enough data for that. 
So I think that, and the systems themselves are, I don't think are quite ready for that. So there's still a role for humans. I think the role of, of humans is for the foreseeable future anyway, going to be a lot of what we're doing now, a lot of what we're doing now, maybe we do less of the paperwork and less of the grunt work and a little more of the thinking, a little more time to actually review what's happened and so on. So that's the, to me, I think that's the promise in the short run is that a lot of drudgery we don't have time for, or we go over quickly, or we just absolutely hate can be automated or semi-automated. Okay, nice. All right, Hugh. So yeah, you clearly know your shit when it comes to, uh, to AI. <laughs> we also wanted That's to ask right. you, yeah, it's quite difficult to pick a concentrated volume of questions for this interview, but something I really wanted to touch on, which always fascinates me, is building teams. So you created and led a team of construction technologists. So what would your tips be for someone who is uh, currently going through that process? Not necessarily construction technologists, but like teams in general. Yeah, there's a few things. The old adage of hire slow, fire fast, yeah. unfortunately is true. Take your time with people. I think that the other element that people give don't spend enough time on is thinking about what the job description is. What do I need and what am I going to need? The final thing I'd say with that is a hire for attitude. I've, the number of times I've hired somebody and the job has changed and they've got a great attitude and they wind up doing great is far outweighs the opposite. So I think really smart people with a terrible attitude. There's an old joke that a distracted genius and an idiot look the same because they're both barely giving you very much of a brain. Well, that's, that's a bit of a harsh analogy. But the point is, if somebody's not paying attention or not engaged, it doesn't matter how smart they are. Somebody's above average, but really committed. You're going to get a lot out of them and they're going to think about how to do their job better. And it just keeps getting better because their brain is focused on the business and how they do their job as much as it is actually executing. So I think if I were to say anything, it's attitude over ability. Sometimes you, that said, the other thing, especially when you're talking about actual technologists like engineers, it's worth noting that a, the best are not close to the not best in that you can get productivity out of people who are really, really good in a way that is just different. And it is a little bit of an attitude thing and some of it's a skill thing and some of it's an experience thing. But the right engineer can absolutely transform your business, absolutely transform it. And they'll see things that it's not a matter of how hard they're working. It's they'll see more of the board, for lack of a better word. They'll see opportunities. They'll look at architecture. So it's important, especially for some of the back-end architecture sides of software, to just be aware of the fact that there are some people who are worth the money, even if it absolutely kills you to pay them that much. Mm -hmm. Nice. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Oh, and you wanted to go for the sales question? Yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to hear you ask with firing topics about go-to-market as well, because you, you're at Construction Spec Institute and yeah, you tripled sales. So how did that look? A couple things there. One of them is having a structured go-to-market and thinking about what people are going to buy and how they're going to buy it is really important. The other thing that I think people miss, depending on what their product is, there are kind of big enterprise deals with the US, the ENR 400 and so on. And those are hugely valuable and they drive ultimate business value. There's a lot of folks in the middle, though, who you can just start to drive sales with. So I think it's important to, to think about your business in a segmented way. People do this. Don't get me wrong. But if you were to think about what makes for success, especially early, it's really being humble about who will buy what and how you can serve different people at different levels and not being stuck on the model that you think is going to work in a year and a half. 
So getting started zero to one, there's a whole reason Peter Thiel wrote the book that way. Getting from zero to one is messy and it's hard and it takes a lot more hustle and a lot more hustle than I think people think it does, especially if they're coming from a corporate job where a lot of that stuff was done 20 years ago. So there's nothing, nothing substitutes for humility and just getting out there and getting the darn sale. So is, is that a process, is that a matter of like getting, we have to use the common term, getting out of the building, or is it a mix of strategies and techniques that someone can implement? That's a great point. The getting out of the building is a good analogy anyway. And that's, you could say that's getting out of your own head. It kind of means mm-hmm. a few things. Definitely. One thing I would argue is try to have as many conversations as you can. That could mean hiring an SDR to just make a bunch of phone calls and just see what's out there. Because almost definitely you're coming from one angle. You're coming from a big GC or you're coming from a big tech company or whatever it might be. There's going to be people out there who are not like what you think they are. They're smaller, they're nimbler, they're more willing to, to get ahead. There are small companies, way smaller than you'd think, who are pretty darn innovative because their founder wants them to be. This is GCs. I'm not talking about software companies. Or their executive team is saying, we're never going to grow against the big guys unless we take some risks ourselves. Let's figure out how to do that. I'm continually surprised at how smaller contractors are willing to invest in things up to a point. They don't have the cash beyond a certain point, but they're willing to try things way more than people think they are. And there's a lot of them. So I think that there's a lot of value in, in focusing on the mid, the mid section of the market. It is harder to scale. You still have to, there's still a, that number of actual enterprises you have to interact with. But if you can get your head around how to do that in a scalable way, they're often very underserved, pretty eager to move forward, pretty aware of the fact there's this anxiety in the industry that we're being left behind by technology, which I don't think is true as much as people think it is, but it's out there. And if you give people the time of day, I think you can get a lot of progress. Okay, Brilliant. Should we move on to uh, off-topic questions? Yeah. All right. So I, based on your background and time spent uh, in China, I wanted to, and obviously now you are in the US, so I wanted to, take, to get your take on the technology advancement that is currently happening in China within our industry versus what's happening in the US, as an example, or in Western world. And I don't know, do you track... Uh, what's happening over there and can you compare those two yeah the chinese construction industry is really impenetrable it's really hard to see from the outside what's happening because it's not like the korean or the even the japanese construction industries where they often do things internationally my sense is technologically they're not as advanced as the us is what they're building might be the methods they're using to build them i have a feeling are less so Um, my experience there would, would indicate that that's true. That said, the thing about the Chinese economy, while, I mean, I spent a lot of time in China itself, not just the, the other Hong Kong and Taiwan, 90% of the economy is really hard for a foreigner to understand and to know what's going on. You don't really see it as much. You're in Shanghai or you're in Beijing and you see these gleaming towers and you think you understand it in the industry and or the, the country. And there's just so much that is hidden. And it's not hidden because they're hiding it. It's hidden because you're not in the right room or you're not talking to the right people and you're not out in the provinces where a lot of the action is happening. So it's really hard from the outside to answer your question. My guess is there will be elements where China is remarkably advanced, maybe not right now, but getting there. One of them for sure is going to be robotics. As hmm. bad as our demographic situation is in the US and Western Europe, it's 10 times worse in China. 
They have too many men problem. They have a aging problem. One of the best humanoid robotics companies in the world is out of China. And I remember once in 20, 2008, there was a snowstorm in the South and everybody got stuck there. And this is when half the country went to the South to work and then would go back for Chinese New Year. And it was an absolute fiasco of the likes. It's really hard for, I think, Americans to, and Westerners to understand. Ten years later, they were the number one high-speed rail country in the world. I have a feeling that when China focuses on technological problem like this, they will figure out a way to make it work. And so I have a feeling that AI as a general term, they're often on par with us, sometimes behind with facial recognition. They're unfortunately way ahead of us. But with robotics, I have a feeling you're going to see some advancements at scale in China that will, I don't know if they'll be faster than the US, but they'll definitely be remarkable. Very interesting. Watch your space. Okay, one last off-topic question then. So, Hugh, uh, advice for someone entering construction tech or is currently within the construction industry or construction tech industry? I'd say two things. The first one is go to deeplearning.ai and take some of their one-hour free courses on LLMs. There's like eight of them up there. And they're, hmm. you don't have to know Python, even though they have a little thing. You can just listen. And that's a really fast and easy way. And it, of course, they're not one-hour videos, 25-minute videos. So I would do that. For, everybody should do that. It's just free. It's easy. It'll give you an opportunity to understand some of what's going on. Beyond that, I think that talking to people at the core of, of value creation, which is the field, is really important because the complexity and the knock-on effects in construction make software really hard and it makes thinking about construction less abstract than other things. You just, you have to think about what's really happening and talk to actual people about what they're actually doing because it's, there's so many steps and so many players and they're all interconnected at one point or another. And I think that complexity is hard to really appreciate until you mm. spend a lot of time talking to people because it'll be like one story at a time. And after a minute, you're like, my gosh, okay. So I do this and then it affects that. And then we've got trade stacking and we've got that problem. We've got that problem. Oh my gosh. How do you guys go, ever get any work done? <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. Okay. Mark, anything from you? No, no. I think that was brilliant. Yeah. So Hugh, where people can find uh, more about you and the link? So my LinkedIn, of course, the link.ai is our company. We are also doing a monthly webinar with actually people in the field. And once a quarter, I'll do one of them that is just about AI. I wrote a book a couple of years ago. The point of that was to make this stuff at ground level and define all the terms and explain what we're even talking about so that people aren't... like. I, there's this thing that happens in software where people skip over what all this stuff means and assume everyone knows what an API is or what an LLM is or all that mm -hmm. stuff. So I, we spent a lot of time just making sure everybody has a place to go to know what it means in a pretty unbiased way. So those are the th and what, three things. And, and the, yeah, the, the events are all on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. cool. What's the name of um, the book for our listeners? The Construction Technology Handbook. Mm -hmm. Nice. And the events, if you can share as a link, we'll put them in the show notes. Fantastic. Thank you. All right, Hugh. Thank you very much. All right, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Bricks and Bytes podcast. If you are enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate it, and we'll catch you in the next episode.